Morning Hillside. This was obviously not the way that I expected I would be delivering the message from God's Word to you this morning, but as is uh, too often the case, uh, COVID has come to our home, uh, and so I am forced to quarantine at least through uh, today until I'm able to be tested. And so uh, I'd appreciate it if you would pray for our family. Thankfully, the symptoms that are being displayed thus far by those who have COVID are very mild. But uh, just to be on the safe side, uh, we wanted to make sure that God's word was delivered to you this morning uh, in the safest way possible. So with that said by way of introduction, why don't we pause for a word of prayer? Father, thank you for the opportunity to share your word, no matter where it is, no matter how it is delivered, we thank you that your word, by your spirit, is where the power is. So to that end, I pray that you would speak through me as I deliver your word to your people here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let me begin by saying if there is anything that I am an absolute sucker for in the movie business, it is the epic, epic battle scene. It doesn't matter the movie. It doesn't matter really whether the movie is even good or bad. If there's an epic battle scene in it, I am going to stick around to at least watch that part. And of course, in every epic battle scene, there are really two parts that resonate with me the most. There's first the sort of lead up to the actual battle in which finally the leader of the army on one side or the other uh, to motivate his people, to motivate his soldiers, lets out some guttural sort of primordial scream or cry that everyone knows on his side it means they are to charge. It's this you know, sword pointed forward and charge. And everybody then yells together as they charge. And eventually the two sides come together with metal and bones colliding in uh, catastrophic ways. And then the other side of it is actually, well, the battle itself is fine, but, but the, my favorite part of an epic battle scene is the end when the victory is finally won because again at that moment the victor typically raises a flag swings it back and forth or raises a fist or whatever it is but something's got to be raised that's the rules i didn't make them up but that's the rules something's got to be raised and once again they yell from the depths of their primordial being a declaration of victory then the tension is released and finally some level of peace is restored. Now, I bring up epic battles to start my sermon today because, well, I'm going to be talking to you about, frankly, the most epic battle in all of history. No, I'm not talking about a battle during the Revolutionary War or the Civil War or World War II. But of course, I am talking to you today about the battle, the great cosmic battle between the forces of light led by Jesus and the forces of darkness led by Satan, the devil. 
And specifically, what we're going to be looking at over the next five weeks here at Hillside is Christ's victory over these forces of darkness. We're going to be looking at the various ways that Christ is exalted because of his work. Now you say, why, why five weeks on that? Well, historically, the church has broken up those periods of exaltation or those events of exaltation or victory into five stages. There's, of course, the resurrection, there's the ascension, there's the what's known as the mediation or what we might call his intercession for us, and then, of course, there is the second coming. But before all that, there is a part of his victory, a part of his exaltation that might seem strange to us, and that is his descent into hell or Hades, the place of the dead. Now, you, you might say upon hearing that, how is it that Jesus descending into hell is part of his victory? How is that him being exalted? Well, I hope to explain that to you today. With that said, let's go ahead and read our passage that this sermon is going to be based off of from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. It says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, prison here because it's a spiritual prison we take to mean the place of the dead or Hades or hell more on that in a little bit and why did he go there because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few that is eight persons were brought safely through water end of reading all right so we're going to look today at three questions our text answers for us as we discuss Jesus's victorious descent into hell. First, we're going to look at how Jesus has won the victory over the forces of darkness. Secondly, we're going to ask who Jesus proclaimed his victory to. And thirdly, we'll deal with what Jesus's victory has actually won him. What has he actually won? So first of all, how has Jesus won the victory? Well, of course, he did it in a way that nobody was expecting. What the world expected was that Jesus would win his victory the same way all great conquerors win their victory, through overthrowing the corrupt leadership there uh, here on earth and in hell below. The expectation was that the Messiah, when he did come, would take up swords, would overthrow the throne of Israel in Jerusalem, gather himself a great big army, and then rule on that throne, setting up paradise on earth from the center in Jerusalem. But instead, of course, as many of you know, much to the surprise of everyone, Jesus does not do that at all. No, instead, instead he lives his life bringing healing to his enemies, to sinners, and frankly, isolating himself from the very people you might expect that he would amass an army with, namely the, the religious establishment, the Jewish religious, religious establishment. You'd want them on your side if you were trying to amass enough of a powerful army to take it over. In fact, Jesus's army would consist of a ragtag bunch of nobodies that had no cultural clout or power at all. And as if that weren't strange enough, instead of fighting the corrupt establishment, 
He submits himself to them. In fact, he refuses violence even when his own disciples try to act violently against his enemies. He rebukes his disciples for giving in to violence. And eventually, he is beaten and he is mocked and he is scorned and he is crucified all the way until he breathes his last. From the vantage point of that time, there was no doubt that this was a defeated Messiah character in the minds of just about everyone. And to that end, there was no doubt that the forces of hell delightfully assumed that they were the victors. As they heard him cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As they hear the very Son of God cry out that he's thirsty, well, it would make all the sense in the world that he was going down. Nobody anticipated what Peter would write for us today. For Christ also once suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. They just didn't anticipate it. You can look at what the disciples would say when Jesus would predict such things. I don't get it. I don't know what you're talking about. It makes no sense to me. And yes, the forces of hell didn't anticipate that through submitting himself to, to death that Jesus was, in fact, accomplishing his greatest feat, suffering for the sins of humanity. They didn't anticipate that he was making atonement for humanity. They didn't anticipate that this act cleared the way cleared the path between God and man to bring sinners who had rebelled against him back as friends. And they certainly didn't anticipate that this act of his would be vindicated by him raising from the dead. No one had ever defeated death before. But since Jesus declared it is finished on the cross, that meant the war was over. The battle had been won. Indeed, it meant he was even declaring victory over the forces of darkness. No, Jesus could not have descended into hell to suffer anymore, as some have said. That's not the case. When he said it's finished, he didn't have his fingers crossed. He wasn't joking, and he wasn't being insincere. He meant it. It is finished. So now it's time to declare the victory. Now, let's bring this down to sort of brass tacks. Why does that matter to you? Well, it matters because I can guarantee you all of us will face dark times in our lives where it feels like the darkness is winning. Because even though our foes from the pits of hell are defeated foes, they are still active, just leashed, and they can do an awful lot of damage. One day they'll be, com they'll be defeated completely. One day, one day they will be vanquished. That's true. The book of Revelation tells us that is in fact going to happen, but they're able to cause all sorts of havoc and chaos in the meantime. And when those times come, 
When, when you feel like all you face is loss, it's then that you need to remember the words of Jesus when he says to his disciples, in this world you will have trouble, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. When the least up forces of darkness drive you into wondering if all that ails you will one day be defeated, you need to remember the words of 1 John that tell us in Jesus life, in Jesus is life and the life is the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. All right, so we've seen how Jesus wins the victory. Counterintuitively, it's through his suffering and through his pain and through his submission to those who would harm him that he ends up atoning for all of us. But let's move on now to who Jesus proclaims his victory to. Peter writes that upon being raised in his spirit, Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, what in the world is going on here? Well, admittedly, there have been lots of plausible explanations offered up. And it is true that there's not a whole lot of consensus about how to interpret this verse. I mean, there's lots of disagreement about how to understand it. Some, some have posited that this is referring to Jesus preaching specifically to this band of angels that had risen up during the days of Noah that seemed to be crossing the boundaries between the spiritual and the physical and doing all sorts of terrible things. They were known as the Nephilim. We don't have to get into all of that right now, but that's what some have posited because, of course, it does reference spirits that disobeyed during the days of Noah. It's legitimate to take it that way. Some people believe that this is just referring to those spirits in the days of Noah as sort of a broader picture of the demonic spirits that have fallen from all time and that Jesus is just proclaiming victory to Satan and his army of darkness. And then again, still, some people believe that Jesus is preaching to everyone stuck in the realm of the dead, maybe even with the hope of bringing some of those people that have been stuck there to repentance and to come back with him. I think there's some problems with that argument, but, but nevertheless, all these interpretations may be plausible, but aren't perfect solutions and have some degree of speculation. We acknowledge that. I personally hold to the idea that what's basically being taught here is that yes, Jesus was preaching through Noah way back when, that's true, but this is also really de depicting Jesus preaching after he's risen in the spirit, but before he's appeared to his disciples to the forces of darkness, to the realm of the dead. That's what I believe. But the important thing to focus on is the primary reason that he went and preached to these spirits in prison, and that is to declare that he has won victory over sin, death, and hell. Now, how do I come to that? How do I come that he's preaching to just uh, the realm of the dead and with a focus on the satanic forces? Well, it seems to fit. When we have a passage in Scripture that seems to be unclear, well, what we have to do is we have to look to the broader parts of Scripture to see if there's anything that would shed more light on it. And one of those things that sheds more light on this passage is how often, how often the theme of Jesus' victory is mentioned throughout all of the New Testament. Take, for example, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. 
In verse 54, he says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Do you hear the apostle Paul taunting death? And then he says this at the end of the passage, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. One of the dominant themes throughout, especially the New Testament, is that Jesus is the victor. And because he doesn't have any more suffering to do since he accomplished it all on the cross, I believe that he goes to the forces of darkness that have enslaved all of humanity in bondage to sin and goes to them specifically to say, it's over. The game has been won by me. I storm your gates and take the plunder. I take those who were bound to one day join you in hell and I make them citizens of heaven through my life, death, and resurrection. I think it's fair to say Jesus goes to the forces of darkness and taunts them. I'll give you an example, something that comes to mind when I think of taunting one's opponent. It reminds me of a basketball playoff game a couple of years ago in 2019. Uh, it was the first round of the Western Conference play playoffs between the Portland Trailblazers and the Oklahoma City Thunder. And throughout the series, the Thunder players, and really throughout the season, had sort of been making fun of the Blazers' star player, Damian Lillard. Uh, they would, you know, do little gestures to him, and they would make little comments in interviews. And, and of course, this is part of the psychology of the game. They're trying to get into his head, you know. But this was, it was really, you could tell, very annoying to the Blazers. And so the Blazers took it personally. And as a result, they played a great series. You, you eventually get to game five in the series. Blazers are up 3-1. But this fifth game is very close. It comes down to the final seconds. It's 115-115. You would assume by the woof and warp of how the game of basketball is played that, that the Thunder might win this one and keep the series going. There's a few seconds left. The Blazers have the ball all tied up. Damian Lillard, of course, the one that they had been mocking and teasing and taunting, has the ball, brings it past half court, just a few seconds left, and to everyone's great shock and awe, takes a shot from 40 feet away with his opposing defender, Paul George, like pretty much in his face and sinks it. I mean, nothing but bottom of the net, sinks the bucket, buzzer goes off, Blazers win. Celebration is wild, of course. But the part that's always stuck out to me about that event is what Damian Lillard does right after he hits the shot. Why don't you check it out now? Foot dagger. Oh, my goodness. Look at that shot. To put them out, he went for 50 points. That point, that was 47, 48, 9, and 50 points on that one. That's amazing. Oh, five years ago, Lillard hit a three against your Rockets. Yes. To win a first-round series. Damian Lillard for 50 points. Good night, Oklahoma City. 
season over. Did you see it? Did you see it? The wave in the opponent's face. Now, I think Jesus, upon going into the gates of hell, is saying, you're done. I've won. You have no dominion anymore over these people. They're mine. But there's still one question we have to go over, and that is, what does Jesus actually win through his victory? Well, certainly he wins the acclaim and the glory of heaven. The angelic host praise him from on high for what he's done. And certainly he wins the submission of the devil and his minions at his feet. That's a guarantee. But the truth is, as the second person of the Trinity, it was never really in doubt that the son was going to win the glory. It was never in doubt that he was stronger and the victor over the devil and his minions, even if the devil and their minions and his minions thought otherwise. But, but if you think about it, there is one thing that he didn't have before accomplishing his victory. There is one thing he was driven to win above all else. You. You are his prize. Now you, you may say, I find it very hard to believe that I'd be a prize for anybody. <laughs> Especially if you contrast your life with what God's law says your life is to look like, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And you do an honest assessment and you say, that I haven't done that, so... I'm not worthy of being prized at all. Not to mention thinking about all the ways that you fall short, even with the people you love on a daily basis. All the ways that you give in to your, your temper, or all the ways that you give in to, to problematic behaviors and thoughts. You might think, no, this can't be that I'm the prize for his victory. But I'm telling you, Jesus' greatest victory the thing that all of heaven and earth will spend eternity praising him for is that he found a way to make enemies into friends and more than friends, rebels into brothers and sisters, members of the family of God who once had no business being there. As the book of Hebrews says, it was for the joy that was set before Jesus that he endured the cross. What is the joy? You are his joy. The Old Testament prophesies that God will sing with joy over his people. And there's not one of those people that wasn't a rebellious person towards him. And yet God's love is so profound that yes, he takes joy over you being a member of his family. Part of what he's doing when he preaches to the minions of hell is declaring to them that the world they thought they'd own in eternal bondage is now released by faith in his name. So the question to conclude with today for you who are viewing this 
is can you believe it? Can you believe after the week you've had that, that yes, God wants you so much that he'd go through all of this for you? To have you? Because that is the most fundamental question any of us can answer. It's just fine to say Jesus died for the sins of the world. But it's quite another to say Jesus died for my sins. It's one thing to say Jesus forgives sinners. It's another thing to say Jesus forgives me. It's just fine to say Jesus won the people of the world back from the realm of darkness. It's another thing to say Jesus won me back from the realm of darkness. It literally makes all the difference in the world. Can you believe this? One of my professors in seminary told a story once about a trip he took to see some, some relatives. I'm not sure if he was just converted or just really, really pumped up to share Jesus with his relatives, but, but he was fairly convinced that most of his relatives were not Christians. He was fairly convinced that, that they were not zealous enough for Jesus. And he recounted having a conversation with an older aunt of his in which he came to her multiple times and said, Auntie, do you know Jesus? And all he got in return was silence. So he said again, a little bit more insistently, Auntie, do you know Jesus? And still nothing. Finally, with consternation and frustration, he said again, Auntie, answer my question. Do you know Jesus? And this older lady looked at her zealous nephew and said, Jesus knows me. Do you see the difference? It's one thing, it is one thing to talk about Jesus in the abstract. It is another thing to be known by him. It is another thing to be accepted by him and to rest in that reality. That is what Jesus is ultimately declaring when he storms the gates of hell. I know whom I have bled and died for. I know who I have atoned for. They are mine now. I have won them for all eternity through faith in my name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to rest in the victory that you have accomplished through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you for doing everything necessary to give us the victory, to give us confidence that where we walk, when we walk, what we do is ultimately guided by your victorious spirit and that we need not fear the forces of hell that will lob their arrows in our direction because you have given us the weapons of warfare to fight back with. So, Father, bless these people as you brought them here today. 
guide them throughout their week to walk in assurance of the victory they have in you, our Lord Jesus, who taught us to pray with one voice. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever.